Hi, I'm Ben Shirey, and welcome to another episode of the Self Storage Insight Podcast. In today's episode, I speak with Michael and Paul of Bigger Garage Capital, and they speak about how they have built an in-house call center to manage their facilities, as well as bring on joint venture investments to help grow their business. Michael, Paul, thank you guys for joining me today on the podcast. Super excited about today's episode. Paul, if you don't mind starting us off today here and give us a little bit of your background in the industry, kind of how you got into the self-storage business. Yeah, so name's Paul Beats. Um, I've been a real estate investor since 2018. Um, I got started in the single family market in uh, Indianapolis, Indiana. So I grew my portfolio to about 25 doors. I'm down to about 22 now. We sold a couple. Um, during the pandemic, uh, we, you know, uh, everybody experienced the, uh, the disruption of the um, eviction moratorium. So one of the things that really concerned me, having a lot of rentals and kind of uh, a lot of my eggs in one basket was that, uh, you know, that, that passive income stream could be disrupted. So uh, I started looking for kind of alternate uh, real estate investment uh, uh, options and uh, came across uh, self-storage and uh, joined a mastermind. Um, about that same time, uh, Mike and I, we were... Um, in Indianapolis for an out-of-state investor uh, symposium. And, um, you know, he and his wife were looking at Indianapolis as a, a good place to get started uh, in doing some real estate investing themselves. Um, and so uh, our wives got along very well. We get along very well. And so that's how we met. And then it was probably a couple months after that where I basically said, hey, uh, you know, I joined this mastermind, this self-storage mastermind. And you know, it's it's a big play, uh, some big commercial numbers, and um, you know I'm raising some money to to try to take down some storage units, and I'd love for you to to partner up. And um, okay. so I'll let Mike, you know, take that from there. You know, a, a little bit on you know his take there, but that's how we got into the self storage, and so uh, we're about six self storage facilities in, and uh, getting larger as we go, and. Um, we're hoping to, to, you know, aggressively grow that portfolio in the coming years. Awesome. Yeah, Mike, if you want to give us a little background on yourself here as well. Yeah, I appreciate it, Ben. So my name's Mike Mogarella. Uh, like Paul, I also got started in the single family residential world in Indianapolis uh, for a lot of the same reasons that Paul mentioned. I quickly transitioned my focus over to commercial real estate and specifically self-storage. And as Paul said, shortly after we met and, and we hit it off. We had underwritten some deals together. Paul presented a self-storage opportunity that uh, hit his inbox and we went under contract on that. And unfortunately, we didn't close that facility. Uh, but since then, we've closed six facilities, as Paul has mentioned. And we quickly learned after we closed the first that a lot of the things we were doing um, needed to be done at scale if we wanted to implement the technology that we wanted to and we wanted to use the vendors that we wanted to work with. Uh, so we've tried to build it like a business from day one. Okay. And yeah, that's kind of interesting that you said it like that too, because I think there's a the conception, you know, even still with a lot of people that self-storage is just an investment, you know, that kind of just maintains itself, but it really is more of a business if you're trying to grow it and scale it. 
right? So you can, you know, the mom and pop place that has one facility, they can get a good, you know, recurring income stream from that. But if you're trying to scale and grow and compete, it has to be treated more like a business than it does just as an investment. Yeah. So for our investors, it's a passive uh, play uh, mailbox money for them, but yeah, very much. So it is a business. Uh, we run a business, we have employees and, and it's kind of anchored in uh, the cash flow that comes from real estate. And so, uh, yeah, Paul, if you don't mind speaking to that a little bit, when you guys were talking there and when we had talked before, you said about, you know, starting a call center in-house as far as to handle the support as you guys grow and scale. If you could give us a little bit of a background on that, as well as maybe some pain points that you ran into along the way with getting that started and how it's going today. Yeah. So um, there's always a, a make versus buy, right? Uh, you can outsource your call center. You can outsource, you know, and really make it as passive for an owner as possible. Um, we did look at a number of big players. Like Mike said, we wanted to pick whatever horse we were going to use long-term because switching around is very disruptive for your tenants, for your investors, for yourself. Sure. And, you know, as we were going through and looking at um, the various options, it's just expensive, right? Um, and it's a lot of work for those companies. So, you know, rightfully so, um, you know, I, I spent 20 years in corporate um, uh, software engineering and I've hired uh, probably 300 people over my, the course of my career. So, you know, uh, identifying good talent, <laughs> hiring them, um, you know, building a team that is capable to uh, get things done. That's a little bit in my background. And so that's okay. why I leaned very much towards uh, building our own team. And that also allowed us to scale as we needed, right? Um, a number of vendors that we ran into, they wanted us is a big upfront investment. And then, um, you know, the the economies of scale would come uh, along later. And so we just wanted to build it as we were growing rather than a huge upfront investment that impacted our cash flow. Right. Um, so, we, you know, we've had fits and starts, right? It's always... Interesting. I mean, we we probably hired and fired three or four different office managers before we came across uh, a couple that really stuck. Um, and then as we really started to scale, we realized that uh, having a U.S.-based uh, operation, it just was not going to be cost effective. Um, so uh, Mike and I actually were invited to join um, a uh, real estate mastermind um, called Collective Genius. And one of the things that they encouraged us to do was to look offshore and, you know, work with virtual assistants and, you know, kind of buy our time back. If you've ever you know, read the book, buy your time. Um, and so we've been able to bring on a couple of VAs in the Philippines that have really worked very well for us. And that's kind of, kind of our, our plan is to scale out um, using virtual assistants because the, the, the cost footprint is, is so much more attractive than, you know, uh, hiring U.S.-based uh, folks. Right, sure. Well, one question on that too. I think uh, when we had spoke before, I think you said you had four people with the call center. Is that is that correct? Four. Yeah, we have two U.S.-based and two Philippines-based. That's correct. Okay. And and as far as uh, like you know scaling that, how many how many facilities do you think that you could manage with that size of a team versus you know do you need to add another support agent every two facilities or you're not quite sure yet on that. It's it's tough, yeah. And we haven't. I've been doing some analysis uh, in the the call volume uh, as we add facilities. 
it's it's a challenging problem to figure out because you know number one as we add facilities we're buying larger and larger facilities right so it's right. it's really not so much per facility but it's more per unit or even per tenant you right. know we want to have one facility that is about 100 units but we only have let's say 40 tenants a lot of those tenants have a lot of their own units they're running businesses out of there we hardly ever get any calls from that right. facility whereas we have another facility that has you know 100 some odd uh, 180 units and we have more than 100 tenants um, so every tenant in there has, you know, maybe just one or two units. Um, right. And so the ones as we acquire facilities and we look at how many tenants are in the facility, um, that really is drives the, the volume of calls. Um, and it really also, like I said, uh, the it's not just per facility, but it's also what phase of stabilization is that facility in. So, you know, we just acquired a facility in Memphis, Tennessee. It's a little over 200 units uh, with parking probably 260 to 300. And, um, you know, these folks are just calling us constantly, right? I mean, we're getting calls daily, all weekend long, all through the holiday. Um, and so over time, we'll get them to the point where they can kind of, they can go online to pay their bill. We'll have a lot of them on auto pay. You know, we'll have a lot of these processes in place uh, where they're not calling us as much. So right. we're just trying to look at, you know, as we bring a facility, there's a spike and then it, it goes down as we stabilize and we bring another facility on and there's a spike. And our goal is to try to have uh, at least cover the spikes over time uh, so that we don't get overwhelmed with every new acquisition. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. A uh, question then on that would be as far as operationally, when you look at a facility, do you set your prices and your price increases based kind of on like an occupancy rate where you want to maintain, you know, 80% occupancy so you can continue to increase prices faster? Or do you look at it more like a long-term, you know, do you have it based on the, the length of the tenants there or, or how do you kind of base your prices for yeah. each facility? So our pricing is two pieces. So I'm going to let Mike handle a little bit of the intake when, you know, when we're first vetting a facility, we look at the market prices, and when we take over a facility, we start our prices very close to where Mike has done the underwriting, right? Because okay. we want to make sure that our underwriting is at least to meet that threshold. Mike could talk about, you know, some of his strategies there. But once we we raise the rates at the beginning of the acquisition and we're stabilizing the facility, we do have a yield management process where, based off of occupancy the new tenants are paying more uh, higher rate from the what's what we call managed rates which is adjusted based off occupancy versus right. standard rates and so the managed rates go up automatically through our system as occupancy rises so the last unit in that unit type that gets rented out is the most expensive unit Okay. <laughs> Very similar to airline. You know, we actually explain that to our tenants. Right. You know, airline seats, as they fill up the plane, the last seat to sell is the most expensive. Sure. Um, and then from a rate increase, we do have a standard rate increase. We start out about six months. Uh, so a new tenant comes in after six months, rate goes up by 8%. And then we do that about every seven to eight months, 8%, uh, 8%, 8% throughout the life of the contract. Um, and then, okay. you know, what happens is <laughs> they eventually move out and or uh, and 
we'll go back and re-rent that unit to whatever the standard or managed rate is at that time. Sure. And do you see that that 8% increase, is that pretty standard across all markets or have you noticed it pushes tenants out faster in different areas? Um, so far, it, it's been pretty palatable. Now, what we okay. do see with the larger units is, you know, we've got a couple uh, 20 by 20 units um, and 8% of a $250 unit is a big jump. And we do see that that causes some consternation. But, you know, if you've got a unit that's $70 a month and, you know, 8% of that's, you know, it's really not too much. And I think the tenants don't, some of them don't even notice or, or it's just such a small amount per month that they don't really don't have any issue with it. And then, of course, the six to seven month, eight month window of time uh, as it's going up. I mean, eventually they, they look back and say, well, what the, what the heck? I'm paying so much for this. And then usually they'll move out or do something like that. But that's, that's right. you know, the way that we want to maximize our revenue per door. Um, sure. And then a little bit of churn people coming and going is actually a good thing. Absolutely. And, and yeah, there's a little bit more strategy involved, I think, than most people think of when they're looking at a storage facility, you know, a bunch of doors and you just set rent. But there's a lot of strategy there on maximizing your profits for each unit uh, over over the course of that unit's life. So, uh, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, Especially Mike, at the have... acquisition phase, too, because most of the facilities that we're looking to purchase are value add facilities. So they might be run by mom and pops. They might have a lot of physical vacancy. There might be economic vacancy, meaning that the rents are just far below market. So for us, it's really important to dive into the market and determine what we think our rates could be. Unfortunately, there is not really a Zillow rentals uh, vendor out there that can give you that information, at least not in a cost-effective way. So we do a lot of that analysis ourselves, at least at the front end, before we go to a vendor, we'll dive into the supply and demand of a market, the population growth, the job growth, the median income. And as Paul said, we'll just look at competitor pricing to be as competitive as we can once we take ownership. Okay. Yeah. And that's interesting. And, and Mike, if I can stay with you for a second here, you mentioned value add is what you look for with acquisitions. What are some of the main things that you're focusing on when you're looking at a possible acquisition of a facility where you feel like you can maximize revenue the fastest? Mom and pop facilities are always the ones that we're targeting. It's, it's great if it's not a professional owner that uh, owns the facility. So for example, they're not doing some of the yield management that Paul mentioned, and they might have tenants who are paying the same rates for years on end. That's a real nice value add for us. And it's fairly easy to come in and, and increase rent, especially if we feel good about the demographics. We've done that on day one before, and we've done it six months in before. It really just depends on the deal, how good we feel about the occupancy and the market. Uh, and then expenses. There's a lot of folks who have on-site managers and there's just so much technology out there nowadays that you don't need somebody sitting at a desk from nine to five at a storage facility. There's just right. not enough work to do on-site. So we have boots on the ground and maintenance folks who are out at the facilities a few times a week or more often if necessary, but that's a big expense right there. I mean, the most recent facility that we purchased was paying an on-site manager north of $35,000 per year to sit at a desk. And right. that cost for us is going to be probably less than 5,000 per year. And and have you seen with, with acquiring, you know, mom and pop facilities or whatever, is the stabilization period different on those versus, you know, maybe a, a professional ran facility that you, that you had acquired or not much difference? It, it is a bit different. Um, 
the mom and pop facilities are usually a deeper value add. So we're generally taking prices up a notch, uh, maybe have to increase marketing a notch. And also the tenants just aren't accustomed to professional management. So uh, we don't accept cash at any of our facilities. So implementing our procedures, implementing auto payments, electronic payments is sometimes a challenge depending right. on what the tenants are accustomed to, especially if they've been tenants for years on end. Uh, so yes, it, it can be a challenge with some of these mom and pop facilities. Right. Cause yeah, it, in my area, like my, our demographic rural Pennsylvania, right. A lot of places are, I mean, we have some around here that are cash only, right. So, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that demographic really changes the type of payments that people even want to provide. Uh, you know, or, or, you know, let alone set up a, a customer portal account and, you know, manage their payment stuff online. I know I was working with one facility here, you know, locally, and whenever we were putting their software system together for them, they don't have any email addresses for any of their customers. So we can't even notify them that there's a software change and they're going to have to start paying online. So you do run into these things in different areas where it's just like, man, they do business totally different um, based on that demographic. So Yeah. And there, there's a class of people out there that don't want to talk to people on the phone. They don't want to see them in person. They want to do everything electronic. So we certainly have that option. And then for the folks who prefer cash, um, you know, we try to provide an alternative, but at the end of the day, we're running a business and we're trying to scale and it's just not feasible for us to collect cash. So right. um, sure. that's just the way we run it. And, and so let me just ask you this question then based on that, not accepting cash, have you seen that you've had any trouble filling that unit then with somebody willing to pay with a card and just turning that customer away has made the most sense for you? Yeah, we won't accept cash in, in any instance. Um, as far as filling units, no, I mean, we generally haven't had that issue. We've even had some folks who wanted to pay by check and we were not willing to, to accept that either. Um, and so we just turn our marketing up a notch if we really have to. And that goes back into the analysis that we do on, on the front end and just ensuring that we feel really confident about our demographics and um, feel confident about the supply and demand and, and the need to, uh, or the ability to fill a unit when and if it becomes vacant. Awesome. And so, yeah, you had mentioned marketing there. So maybe I'll shift kind of into the next question I had for you, Paul, was uh, what type of marketing have you found successful with filling units, maybe either through the lease up phase or, you know, with a new build? What type of marketing have you found that has done the best for your business? Yeah. So, I mean, we, we bring on a marketing firm uh, that, that we work with. In fact, we just ended up switching from one to another. Um, you know, okay. initially, you know, this was in the early stages as we were scaling, you know, our understanding of the best way to, you know, um, get tenants was a, a pay-per-click, Google pay-per-click or, or Facebook pay-per-click uh, marketing, right? And it's expensive. <laughs> I think earlier this year, we, we were spending $500 per facility per month you know, uh, 2,500 to uh, $3,000 a month in, in pay-per-click ads. And I'd say didn't really make a huge amount of difference. So one of the things that we've learned is that search engine optimization, SEO, is really, really important. And it, you're really even just throwing your money out the window if you're paying pay-per-click and don't have a strong SEO platform. And so that's one of the reasons why we switched over. In fact, our older vendor, um, we kind of pivoted with him just before we left and said, no, 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 we don't want to pay any more for pay-per-click. We want to pay you to really improve our SEO. And it's amazing for a fraction of the cost, what kind of uh, uh, returns that we had on that. Um, so our recommendation, especially if you're scaling, 
is work with a, a marketing professional that really understands search engine optimization, understands pay-per-click, and um, can get your website out there and, and um, verified. Uh, we do have Google My Business. That's part of the SEO is making you, you know, from the engine, search engine optimization, um, uh, making you seem legit, right? So they right. use a lot of different sources to say, is this website really a legit website? Are they, you know, really in business? Are they, um, uh, you know, open for business for different customers? And so as you can get better and better in that ranking, um, that helps the pay-per-click budget. Right. For sure. Yeah. And have you ran any numbers as far as, do you actually track how much it costs you to acquire a new customer for a unit, or do you not know what that number is? Kind of put you on you the know, spot. There's, it. there's been so much volatility in um, how we're doing our marketing and who we're working with. That's right. definitely some metrics that we've got to get better at uh, because now that we've got an understanding of um, we're all in on SEO and we know how much we're paying for SEO, and then we're able to start looking at, okay, on this new SEO platform, we're getting X number of tenants. Um, and then we're going to ramp up from the SEO in, into the pay-per-click. We haven't even gotten our Google ads turned back on quite yet um, right. with our marketing firm. Once that gets turned on, we're going to start looking at what is the acquisition per tenant. Um, I mean, I will tell you like Sparefoot, many you know operators use Sparefoot. It's very clear how much it is per tenant there, um, usually 2x the uh, the market uh, uh, rent for that unit. Right. As long as we're well below that, which typically it is, um, we're, I, I feel like we're doing good um, because uh, spare foot is a, a big hole in the, the marketing budget. For sure. Um, any of our facilities. Yeah. And I, I mean, I agree with you 100% there. If you don't do marketing, hire somebody that does because you'll waste a pile of money trying yes. to figure out a targeting campaign that works and how do you push different ads in front of people at the right time? You know, even with, even within like software, you know, we have to, a Facebook pixel that we put on, if you're doing pay-per-click and then you're not grabbing their information to market them on social media, you're just wasting your money on that pay-per-click because most of the time they're not going to convert the first time they come to your site anyway. And so, yeah, yeah hire a marketer because you'll pull your hair out spending money on pay-per-click if you don't know what you're doing for sure. Awesome. Uh, I kind of, yeah, maybe we'll shift focus a little bit here uh, to you, Mike, and go into the the acquisition side of your business. Uh, you were talking about doing, you know, you do some joint ventures with other investors to purchase facilities. Uh, how do you find your partners for that when you're looking to acquire a new facility? And how do you decide how many other partners you're going to bring into that deal? Well, the great thing about self-storage and commercial real estate is that there's enough meat on the bone to share the wealth. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons why I pivoted. And I think one of the reasons Paul pivoted from smaller residential to commercial. Uh, so many folks in our network are interested in, in an alternative to the stock market or bonds or just somewhere else to to put their money to work. So more times than not, uh, investors will approach us, especially as we're uh, scaling. I mean, when you have a happy investor, they usually tell family and friends, and that usually leads to additional investors. Uh, so there's always that aspect of it. Uh, and Paul and I also do some outreach to folks in our network. We use social media as a tool. Um, email campaigns as a tool. And our goal in doing that is really just to educate folks in our network about the benefits of real estate, the benefits of self-storage and how it could produce real tangible cash flow, the appreciation involved in it and the tax benefits that come along with it. 
So each deal is different as far as how many investors are in the deal. It really just depends on how large the deal is and um, how many folks we need to make it work. Now, do you have like a like a minimum threshold maybe for a new investor that you would that you would set just to keep you know somebody from trying to invest with a, a very small amount of money, or do you pretty much split it up however people are interested? Yeah, we do. It's it's usually a fifty thousand dollar minimum. Uh, and so the way we structure our deals, it's usually a joint venture or a syndication, uh, and it'll just depend on how active some of those partners are going to be on the joint venture side. There's obviously uh, ac active requirements associated with that, whereas on the syndication side, it's really just a passive investment. And as Paul mentioned, it's, it's really just mailbox money. Uh, and so depending on, again, how large the deal is, what type of deal it is, that'll dictate which route we take there. Uh, late last year, we launched a fund uh, that purchase multiple self-storage facilities. It owns multiple facilities and we're hoping to purchase one or two more this year in the fund. Uh, and the reason we did that was really just to give ourselves a product that investors could actually join us with because there were a lot of folks who were just missing out on deals that uh, they wanted to be involved in just because of timing or whatnot. So right. the fund has been really well received and our minimum for the fund is, is 50,000. Okay. And then whenever you're going to look for another facility, would you just do another round of investment into that fund to keep that same group together? Yeah, that's exactly what we do. Our goal is not to collect money and, and just have it sit in a bank account. If we are bringing money into the fund, we do want to deploy it into a facility. So we do it on, on a round basis. Awesome. And then as far as like sharing profits or, you know, distributions of that, would, would you wait until, you know, do you decide like, yeah, we're going to put a certain amount back into the fund to invest into future ventures, or do you pretty much just split up the profit? And No, and profits are split. If it's profit, it does get distributed to investors and, and um, general partners, of course. Uh, so generally, there's uh, at least a six to 12 month. I'd say transition period when we purchase a facility so we could onboard right. it, uh, do a lot of the things that we mentioned as far as getting tenants onto their new procedures and payment plans and whatnot. So we give ourselves a bit of a stable stabilization period there. Uh, but our goal is to start distributions just as soon as we can um, because, you know, we and our investors want to see the real cash flow. And that's really the goal of, of all of this. Right, for sure. Now, now with your acquisitions, have you actually purchased any property and then developed a facility or have they all been value add properties that you found that were already, that already had some type of occupancy or something like that? We haven't done a ground up development, but we've done expansions before we okay. finished an expansion last year and, uh, it was, it was quite a headache and, and we didn't anticipate it being as much of a headache as we thought, especially considering that expansion was in rural Indiana. Um, but uh, it, it taught us a lot and we took a lot away from that. And one of the main things we did take away from that is when we are planning to do an expansion, we generally aren't underwriting as if that expansion is going to come to fruition and we look at it as, as gravy. So um, that's something that, that is really important. I think for a lot of folks who are starting uh, when they're, when they're looking at broker pro formas or even for investors to understand when they're considering an opportunity, uh, how these numbers are calculated. So for us, we're not going to give any weight whatsoever to potential expansion. And if it does happen, great. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting to mention. You know, one of the things I see a lot, like if you're in Facebook groups or pretty much any social media, there's a ton of interest in getting into the self-storage industry, you know, so you'll always see these people that they're semi-interested and they're like, oh, should I buy an existing facility or should we build one? But that doesn't even seem like, you know, as far as building a facility, the, the length of that investment before it starts to turn a profit is going to be so significant compared to 
buying a facility that's already somewhat developed and, you know, has occupancy and is already bringing in some revenue. Uh, but so, yeah, I was just curious if you were into that side of it at all, as far as building new facilities or, or mainly looking for value add purchases. Yeah, I think, I think you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, it's probably going to take uh, somewhere around a year to, to get your plans in order and get the facility developed. And then of course it takes somewhere between one and two years to fill the facility, depending on the market and how many units you're offering. So you're, you're right. probably looking at three plus years until you see a real return on investment there. And that's kind of been the holdup on some of the developments that we see. And we just feel like a lot of them are priced based on pro forma. And so we're basically paying to do the work, which is not something we're interested in, in doing. Uh, so our goal is to find value add facilities that have some land for expansion and, and we could go in and, and do a build out um, and take advantage of both the profits that are being generated from the business today and the future profits from the build out. Awesome. And, and is there a certain way, so when you're going in for a value add service and you're looking for, is there a specific cap rate you're looking for, or do you kind of factor in all the other things that you might be able to do to maximize the cap rate before you make the decision on if a, if a deal's legit or not for you to pursue? Yeah, we're less, less concerned about the going in cap rate and we're more concerned about what the business is going to look like once we get it stabilized. So not necessarily uh, pro forma rents, but just either market rents or as is rents, depending on the facility, and then what our expenses are going to be. So in a lot of cases, we're going to be able to cut expenses on day one. And there are going to be some things we do that are going to cost a bit more than a mom and pop. So advertising is one example. There's some mom and pops that don't do any advertising. And as Paul mentioned, uh, we do retain a marketing firm. So we want to know what our expenses are going to be. And, you know, fortunately we have built this like a business. So we, we have a pretty good idea of what our expenses are going to be when we're going into a facility. So we'll take all of that, our projected income, our projected expenses, and we'll look at what that looks like once it's stabilized. And that's how we look at a deal. And is there, is there one thing that you would look at on maybe the last deal that you purchased where you went in, you know, to purchase the facility versus the first one and said, man, this is what we're for sure going to do moving forward. Cause on the first one, we really wasted some money in this area, or we just didn't analyze something correctly. Like what have you maybe learned over the last few purchases of facilities that you've made? Expansion is a big one. Um, not assuming that an expansion is going to be approved or an expansion is going to fill up. Uh, our first facility, we, we did expand it. And so that's a lesson that we took away pretty early. Uh, Paul, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Right. The going in, you know, in our first facility that we uh, acquired, um, we had underwritten it, assuming that the build out would be complete. And so the returns that we were offering our investors, the cash flow, et cetera, was based off of the build out. And then the build out took twice as long. It cost more than what we had expected it would. Um, and then once the build out was done, it took us twice as long as we thought it would could, to, to lease it up from empty to, to 80 to 90%. So right. um, that's, again, my, Mike and I really agreed on that. You know, on number two, um, maybe we'll do a build out, maybe we won't, but um, all of the numbers have to work as it sits. Um, and then if we do a build out, that'll be a business decision with our investors, uh, whether we're going to deploy capital back to, uh, our investors or whether we're going to, you know, put capital into the expansion. Good things to learn from people that have done it. Right. And, uh, 
So if you could give me maybe, you know, just one piece of, of advice, maybe Paul on, you know, running a storage facility, if I was new to the industry and just kind of starting up, what would be one thing that you would tell somebody would be, you know, very important to, to make sure they get right, you know, when they start into the industry? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a tough question to answer, right? Because everybody has their own plans that, you know, how they want to go about things. Like Mike mentioned before, when we got together and we said, we're going to invest in self-storage. Our thought process as that time at that time was we're not going to buy one, we're not going to buy two, we're not going to buy three, we're going to buy 10 or 15. And so whatever processes that we put into place, whatever software, whatever marketing, um, what even camera system, right? We picked a vendor for our security camera systems that are in all of our facilities. Uh, whatever vendors or, or processes that we establish. Um, we want it to be scalable so that it will scale from one, two, or three facilities to 15. Right. Now, you know, there may be some people out there saying, whoa, I don't want 15 facilities. And so that's, there's a little different, different calculus. There's right. a, a lot of different software app uh, applications that you can manage a facility much more affordably than we do, um, but they don't scale to 15 facilities, right? So you kind of sure. have to decide you know, what is my target? How big do I want to grow? Um, and, you know, do I need a fancy camera system that, that scales across all facilities or, or can I use some small 4G ones that, you know, I could just get it on my phone? Um, so that would be maybe my first advice is you need to decide what kind of an investor you're going to be. Am I going to be bringing in investors or this is just me and, and the, the wife, right? We're just right. going to do this ourselves. Um, and then the other piece of advice I give is, and you had brought this up earlier, this is a business. And I don't know that, I think there's still people out there that invest in self-storage and think, oh yeah, everything's a business, you know, I'll be fine. But when we first got started, uh, my wife and I were on the operations side. And so we were taking phone calls and we had, um, I think it was 30 tenants, Right. And those 30 tenants would call it all different nights and days, right? Yeah. <laughs> and getting started, we didn't have the cash flow to afford a call center beside, behind ourselves. So I don't think it was until we had our second or third facility that we're like, okay, we got to bring on at least one person that could take these calls. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so that's another piece of calculus that you have to think about is these people are going to call you, right? And if you, anybody's ever talked to mom and pops, you know, some of these folks, they sit in their office and take phone calls from their tenants all day long, right? Right. Um, do you want to be that kind of investor or are you looking for something a little bit more passive? Um, if you're looking for mailbox money, your best bet is to find somebody like Mike and I who are doing all of the heavy lifting for you. Um, you know, if you want to answer phone calls and, and, and run a business, Self-storage is a great way to, to do that. Uh, Mike, you had mentioned a little bit earlier that you guys put content out on social media and stuff like that. Is, is there anywhere that you would want listeners to go? Maybe they could find you on Instagram or Facebook. Yeah, sure. I think the best place is biggergarage.capital. That has all the information about us. It has a lot of our content out there. Uh, and it's the best way to, to stay in touch with us and schedule a call. Uh, Mike, five-year plan. What does your business look like in five years? Just keep growing, keep scaling. Uh, as Paul said, I... I kudos to that advice, build it like a business, right? And so that's what we've done since day one. That's our goal for the next five years. Uh, immediate goal is to close out this fund in the next few months, launch a second fund and keep scaling from there. Well, hey guys, it's been awesome talking to both of you. I uh, really appreciate your time for joining me on the podcast today. 
And uh, yeah, I'd love to have you back on sometime and uh, do another collaboration. I really enjoyed talking to both of you and appreciate all the uh, advice and input that you gave into the, into the episode. So. Of course, awesome. same here. Thank you.